what I've noticed over the last several years is that investors, whether they be retail or institutional, have become much better educated as a whole on what ETFs are and how they work. But sometimes I'm still surprised at some of the myths and misconceptions uh, surrounding ETFs. Welcome to the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. In this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the inner workings of ETFs, with the goal of clearing up some common misunderstandings about these products. To help, I've invited Erica Toth, a CFA charter holder and a director at BMO ETFs, whose role is to help both investors and advisors understand how these funds are structured, how they trade, and how they should be used in a portfolio. Erica is based in Montreal, but she joined me in our Toronto studio for a chat. And my guest on the podcast today is Erica Toth from BMO ETFs. Thanks for joining us, Erica. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your role with BMO because I think that it's an interesting sort of segue into this idea of how the ETF landscape has changed over the last few years. You meet with a lot of advisors and talk to them about how they can use ETFs. Um, what are some of the uh, major changes in the industry that you've highlighted during these conversations? Well, my role on a day-to-day basis is I consult with uh, discretionary portfolio managers and uh, institutional investors now as well. Um, I also help uh, retail investors uh, become better educated on ETFs and how to use them. Um, What I've noticed over the last several years is that investors, whether they be retail or institutional, have become much better educated as a whole on what ETFs are and how they work. Uh, But sometimes I'm still surprised at some of the myths and misconceptions uh, surrounding ETFs. Um, And that's where where my role comes in. So uh, the Bank of Montreal essentially pays me to be a nerd when it comes to ETFs and become as informed as possible um, so I can help investors and advisors better understand the intricacies um, and how to integrate them into their portfolio for best results. Okay, great. So maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the misunderstandings around ETFs. I've certainly heard a lot of them from readers and listeners over the years, and even from advisors, you know, people who you would expect would be more familiar with the products and how they work. Um, One of the key things I think that people fail to understand is the similarities between ETFs and mutual funds, uh, and also the important differences between them. So can we talk a little bit about how ETFs and mutual funds are pretty similar? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So let's talk about the similarities first. ETFs and mutual funds at the end of the day are both pooled investment funds. Both are actually regulated by the same national instrument. We call it uh, National Instrument 81102 uh, or the Investment Funds Regulation. So that's another similarity. Both uh, provide investors with instant diversification uh, instead of trying to pick individual securities. They offer the ability to reinvest distributions or set up a drip plan as well, low initial uh, requirement in terms of your uh, your initial investment. So those are some of the main uh, things that ETFs and mutual funds share in common. But where they differ um, is that ETFs trade on the stock exchange. So intraday trading, um, that's, that's the big difference. Uh, whereas mutual funds trade once a day at the end of the day, so offer daily liquidity and any 
anybody who's either buying or selling a mutual fund gets filled at the same price, which is the end of day NAV or net asset value of that mutual fund. Um, another difference between ETFs and mutual funds is the bid-ask spread. So ETFs have a bid-ask spread. That's the difference between the price you're able to buy the units for at any given time and the difference between the price you're able to sell the units at at any given time. Um, so they there's a spread uh, with, with ETFs. Um, and this difference represents the market maker's compensation for making a, a liquid market on that security. Whereas with a mutual fund, there's no bid-ask spread. There's no difference in what you're able to buy it for, what you're able to sell it for, because everybody's getting that same price, the end of day NAV. Um, another difference is with uh, an ETF, there typically is no pre-authorized contribution plans or systematic withdrawal plans that you can set up and just set it and forget it. Um, but with mutual funds, there is that functionality. So you're able to have a pre-authorized contribution set up directly from your checking account and invested in the same mutual fund every month or biweekly, for example. So that has always been really one of the major drawbacks of ETFs, in my opinion, like at least for the average retail investor, right? So if you're a type of person who puts $100 a month in your RSP, ETFs are really not a suitable vehicle for you. Or if they are, you've got to pool a lot of those contributions and only make very infrequent trades. Now, some people will say... It's not a big deal anymore because there are brokerages now that offer commission-free ETF trades. So um, what we didn't talk about, one of the differences, of course, when you buy or sell an ETF, most brokerages charge you a commission. In the industry, it's typically about 10 bucks, mm -hmm. um, but there are some uh, brokerages that offer commission-free ETF trades. But let's talk a little bit, let's go back to talking about bid-ask spreads and, and we can talk a little about how trading ETFs is not necessarily free even if you're not paying, you know, that typical $10 brokerage commission. So can you talk about how the bid-ask spread contributes to an investor's trading costs? Absolutely. And I think it's important for investors to be aware of the different aspects of uh, the costs of, of ETF ownership. Um, so the other components that you want to be aware of, of course, are uh, the MER or the management expense ratio. There's the bid-ask spread, which we'll get into in a second. Uh, any commissions to, to trade the actual ETF, um, but also things like tracking error or discount or premium to the, the net asset value. Um, so in terms of the bid-ask spread, as I mentioned um, a second ago, what that is, is that's the difference you can buy the units for at any given time or what you're able to sell them for on the market at that, at that point in time. And that represents um, the, the cost to the market maker if they were to buy or sell the entire underlying basket. Um, so to compensate them for the risk of making that uh, that market. Okay, Erica, a minute ago you mentioned the term market maker. Uh, can you describe a little bit about what a market maker is and its role in providing liquidity for an ETF? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I'd like to preface that, and great question, by the way, because I think a lot of uh, investors misunderstand that. Um, but I'd like to clarify because ETFs are not like a stock in the sense that for a stock, there's a finite number of shares that are available for sale on the market that are trading, um, barring, of course, any um, share issuance or share buybacks. But with an ETF, it's an open structure. So what that means is that the ETF provider can issue new shares or redeem 
shares of that ETF based on the supply and demand in the market. That said, um, the way the ETF ecosystem works and the way that the liquidity is provided to the market is that there are three levels of liquidity for an ETF. So the first level is what we call the natural liquidity of an ETF, and that's the number of shares trading on the exchange, the number of shares that, um, let's say, buyer A is willing to buy from another investor, um, investor B. So that is uh, the number of units that are exchanging hands between different market participants. So an ETF that is larger, more mature, that has been around for a while, typically you will have more of what we call natural liquidity. So there's going to be more units simply exchanging hands directly on the exchange from one investor to another. Now, the second layer of liquidity, this is where the market making activity comes in. So the market maker these are the large institutions in Canada. So typically, the big banks, for example, tend to be market makers on the ETFs. Um, now, market makers are responsible for creating liquidity in the ETF market. They're responsible for posting um, bid and ask quotes, so the number of shares available either for sale or for purchase at a certain price, and they're responsible to keep the ETF price in line with its net asset value. Now, the third important layer of liquidity is the ETF provider. So if there's a large buy order, let's say, what happens in that case is that the um, ETF provider delivers a creation unit of that ETF, typically about 50,000 shares of that ETF, to the market maker who then buys the underlying securities of that ETF and then offers those units of the ETF for sale and posts, you know, um, a bid and an ask quote for, for that ETF for sale. So that might occur, for example, if you were a pension fund and you were buying $10 million worth of a bond ETF, you're not going to buy that from other investors in the market and maybe not even from the market maker directly. The ETF provider is going to have to go out and create those new units and then introduce them into the market. Yeah. So typically for an average retail investor who's maybe trading five or $6,000 of an ETF, the market maker and the ETF provider are not going to have to go and create more units of the ETF. It's really only if there is a large buy or sell order that exceeds the current quantity of units or the current supply and demand. Okay, now there is another layer of liquidity that I think we'll discuss, which and, and I've seen this, you know, as, as someone who trades ETFs frequently for, for my clients. Um, you know, a lot of times ETF providers will say, well, the you know, liquidity of an ETF isn't determined by how frequently that ETF is traded, right? It's determined by whatever the underlying holdings are. So if I have an ETF and it holds a bunch of large cap Canadian stocks, even if the ETF doesn't trade very frequently, that in theory should be very liquid because all the underlying stocks are trade very frequently, right? In practice though, I've certainly seen this. I think maybe some of our listeners would have seen it as well. You know, uh, an ETF that is maybe less popular than another will trade with a wider bid-ask spread than one that is traded very frequently. So there is some level of liquidity 
that is determined by how frequently the ETF shares themselves are traded. Is that fair? That's fair, absolutely. Um, so as you mentioned earlier, yes, typically um, the liquidity of an ETF is reflective of the underlying securities. The ETF can only be as liquid as uh, as the underlying securities. And that's actually a misconception that I encounter a lot as well, is oftentimes even uh, Sometimes advisors will look at the trading volume before looking at the uh, the bid ask spread of a security, and I think it's under it's really important to understand the liquidity of an underlying market. Now, in terms of uh, larger and more mature ETFs that have more developed uh, what we call natural liquidity, or more buyers and sellers meeting up directly on the exchange, uh, that's where you'll see. Sometimes the ETF itself is more liquid than the underlying asset class and will trade even at a tighter bid-ask spread uh, compared to the underlying asset class. So great examples of this would be, for example, the bond market, which tends to be less liquid, um, and also in the preferred share market, where if you're trading individual preferred shares, you'd see you know, very, very wide spreads, whereas with some of the largest preferred share ETFs in Canada, they would trade at a very tight spread, so a penny spread where that would be unheard of with the, uh, the underlying itself. Yeah, so this is an example of how um, ETFs can make transaction costs a lot lower for the average retail investor. So bonds are a good example, right? There are a lot of bonds, for example, that are purchased by pension funds, insurance companies, these big um, uh, institutional investors, and they never trade, right? So um, there's not a lot necessarily of price discovery. So in other words, people don't really necessarily know what a bond is worth because there's no market to trade it. Whereas an in individual investors are not going to go out in most cases and buy a hundred individual bonds because it would be extremely expensive Impractical, for them yes. to do it. Um, so an ETF which will buy you know thousands of bond issues and then package them up and make them available to you on an exchange, it's a very practical way of um, you know allowing you access to an a an asset class that would otherwise be very expensive to buy. Yeah, and I would say that in this sense ETFs really magnify the their own advantages especially in the harder to trade asset classes and that's why be they're becoming increasingly popular uh, with with institutions as uh, as an investment vehicle. Um, bonds themselves because they trade over the counter and we can't see uh, the prices of those underlying bonds at any given point in time. The ETFs do provide that sort of transparency or that price discovery where average investors wouldn't uh, wouldn't normally have that. Right. So I want to go back to a comment you made a minute ago about uh, advisors who you talked to who would look at the trading volume of an ETF, for example. Um, I think it's fair to say that that is reflective of what people would do if they're used to trading stocks, right? Absolutely. So um, when people trade individual stocks, I think most people understand, at least if you're an experienced stock purchaser or stock mm -hmm. trader, you know that if there's increased demand for the stock, um, it will drive the price up. So if, for example, you were looking at a small oil company or resource company, something like that, a fairly small company, a very large order to purchase, for example, would probably drive that price up significantly. So I have certainly heard a lot of people say, you know, 
ETFs are becoming more and more popular. With more and more people buying ETF shares, isn't that going to drive the prices up? So can you explain why it doesn't work the same way with ETFs as it does with stocks? Absolutely. So I think that that's really one of the key misconceptions out there. Um, with an ETF, at any given point in time, uh, the percentage of the total um, I guess, investable uh, amount of that stock that's out there that is owned by an ETF is going to be very small. Um, so in other words, ETFs uh, would own maybe about 6% of global markets on the equity side and about 2 to 3% of global markets on the bond side. Um, so even a large, a very large ETF, it would be very, very difficult for that ETF to move the price of a security held within it because it only represents a very small percentage of the total ownership of that stock or bond. Now, one of the other things, though, is is structural, right? In the sense, and you, you alluded to it early when you said um, an individual stock has a finite number of shares, right? So, in other words, if, if you know, as a as a public company, you might have issued one billion shares, and investors just trade those one billion shares back and forth. With an ETF, you know, you might launch a new product with, I don't know, 2 million shares, let's say, would mm -hmm. be a typical launch. And if there's huge invest investor interest, you're not just trading those 2 million shares, you're creating like new we're shares. We're going to be creating so more units, that, absolutely. Yeah, that creation process works. So to meet mm -hmm. the demand, um, if, you know, there's a more demand uh, from purchasers than the actual number of units out there. What happens in that case is that the ETF provider works with the market maker to create new units of that ETF. So the process here is that the ETF provider would um, create new units. They'd, it's typically a creation unit uh, or a creation basket of about 50,000 new shares at a time. And the market maker would go ahead and purchase all of those underlying securities, deliver them to the ETF company, and the ETF company delivers to the market maker the number of units to post available for sale of that ETF. Um, and one comment that I wanted to make, because we talked about you know, how it would be very difficult for transactions in an ETF to move the price of, uh, of the underlying securities. So this is definitely true for large liquid markets such as the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange, the S&P 500, or the MSCI uh, EFI, the developed, uh, developed markets. But if you start getting into less liquid or smaller cap markets, then this could be true. So if a particular ETF holds a number of very small cap companies and the ETF becomes large and it represents a larger percentage of the total uh, outstanding float for a particular security, that's when, yes, you could see the ETF move the, the, the market for something, but it's very, very rare. And one thing that I just wanted to go back to, because we spoke about trading volume and the tendency to look at trading volume if uh, you're an investor that's being used to trading stocks. Um, another thing that I often point out in my discussions with advisors is that um, typically the data that you see in terms of trading volume 
um, on many, many data feeds is only reflective of the TSX, of the Toronto Stock Exchange. Now, what a lot of people are, maybe aren't aware of or don't consider is the fact that there are 13 different trading exchanges in Canada that ETFs can trade on. The TSX would represent the largest share of ETF trading. So, you know, tends to be about 20 to 25% of all ETF trades that occur on the TSX. But that means that the remaining three quarters... It's that low. Uh, yeah, 20 25, to, yeah. About 25 percent, hmm. depending depending on the ETF, of course, uh, but overall in general, and then that means that the other uh, the other three quarters is is spread out over the uh, the rest of the exchanges, and you might not even see that when you're looking at the trading volume. Um, so, so that's in, important to consider. Yeah. So in general, the the ETFs probably trade more frequently than you would believe by looking at that's the right. data you're getting from your brokerage, for example. Yeah, that's mm. right. So there's a couple couple ways to check it and to verify to get a true picture if you really want to see like consolidated trading volume. Like there's a website stockwatch.com where you can plug in any security, whether it's an ETF or a stock that's listed either in Canada or in the U.S., and you can see the consolidated. Uh, volume quote, and you can see, you know, the number of shares that have traded on each of the exchanges. So that's a, a neat thing to to check if you are looking at uh, at trading volume. Um, another thing is if you if you work in the industry, you can set it up on your Thompson terminal so that you get a consolidated volume quote okay. directly. Well, that kind of leads nicely into the next line of questioning that I had for you, which is to talk about trading tips for ETF investors. Now, here I'm thinking, again, about, you know, your typical retail investor who is purchasing maybe a couple of hundred shares at a time, not making enormous purchases. Um, But let's talk about some of the sort of best practices when placing ETF trades and some of the common mistakes that you hear. So one of the things that I have always encouraged – investors to do, and so have all the ETF providers, by the way, is to use limit orders when making purchases or sales. So can you describe what a limit order is and why it's important? So that's something that we definitely recommend as a best practice for ETF trading. What a limit order is, is when you're putting in your trade, you're setting a uh, price and you'll get filled for your trade at that price or better if the market moves to your advantage. Um, Now, why this is important is that it establishes a price or a total value for your trade so you know exactly what you're going to get filled at. Um, But also in fast-moving markets, you have the ability to just really uh, determine what what you're going to get filled at. Now, I think it's really important because when I brought up this idea before to people and like, especially when you phrase it that way, like, you know, you're going to get it at your stated price or better. People think of this as though they're like haggling at the bazaar, right? Like they're saying, <laughs> well, I'm going to put uh, a bid out there. Like I only want to pay $20 a share. And if it goes up, then I'm going to hold back and see if somebody will come down to my price. An exchange doesn't work like no. that. So I, I think, can you help us kind of get the message across to people that placing a limit order is there to make your order predictable, not necessarily to get you a better price? That's right. Now, the prices that investors see when they're looking at the quote, that's reflective of the value of the underlying basket. And typically, the spread is going to be pretty small. Um, so it's the value of the stocks or bonds in that basket at any given time. So trying to haggle is not going to work. And the markets are are very liquid. ETFs are a very liquid structure. And the market makers ensure that the trading price is as close to the value of the stocks or bonds in that basket as possible. So there's not 
very much leeway at any given point in time. That's what those underlying stocks or bonds are trading for. So it's not like you can kind of try and negotiate and get uh, get a better get a better deal on something unless the market moves down. In which case, of course, move your move your limit order down. You can take you can put in a lower price if you're buying then. Right. So that's what it comes down to. If you put in a limit order that you know the you offer to buy you know the shares for less than they're currently um, listed for. Your order is just not going to get filled. It's just not going to get filled. It's just going to sit there. And if you're if you're a retail investor, you may miss out on on getting into that position. Like you don't know where it's going to trade in the coming weeks or months. So if you put your limit price too low and you're trying to get a better deal, well, your money might be sitting there in cash, and the market might run up another ten percent. Right. So just to distinguish a, a limit order, so the other major type of order that investors would use would be called a market order. That's right. So can you explain what that means and how that might um, lead to a different outcome if you used a market order um, with an ETF? That's right. So a market order um, would be you you put in your, your buy or your sell order and, and you don't specify a particular price that you want your order to get filled at. Um, and the risk with that is if the market moves, let's say it moves moves way up, um, you might end up paying more than you thought you would be paying for the securities. Or conversely, if it moves down quickly, um, well, as, as a buyer, you wouldn't maybe you would mind, a better price, but yeah. when you're selling, you might uh, you might get less than, uh, than you thought you would be getting. Now, in a fast-moving market too, like markets can be volatile, things can move around a lot. Um, so that's why we always suggest to use a limit order. One of the other things that uh, comes up when trading ETFs is that, let's say you're buying a BMO ETF, it's listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange, it's bought and sold during the hours the market is open here in North America, it's traded in Canadian dollars, but the underlying stocks, you could be buying an ETF of US stocks or an ETF of international stocks, and those stocks trade on a different market. They don't trade on the TSX. What are some of the problems that can come up when trading these international equity ETFs and how can you avoid them? So what we suggest as a best practice is always trying to trade if possible when the market for those underlying securities is open. Um, so for example, um, for the European equity markets, the Euronext exchange is open until about 10.30 in the morning, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, the London Stock Exchange is open open until about 11.20 uh, Eastern Standard Time. And um, I should also mention that there's actually no overlap where the Australian, the Chinese, or the Japanese markets are open at the same time as ours. But we do always suggest when possible to trade when the underlying market is open because typically these spreads tend to be tighter then. So that reduces your cost of, of owning that, that ETF. Um, now, typically, if you're a retail investor and you're buying, let's say, $3,000 worth of a particular ETF and you're planning on holding it for a year maybe or two years or you're not sure, but let's say you're a longer-term uh, type of a buy-and-hold investor, that bid-ask spread is typically not going to have much of an impact on your costs over the longer term. But if you tend to trade more frequently, then it's something that you should definitely be aware of and taking into account. Now, typically, yes, the spreads tend to be tightest when the underlying markets are open. Um, 
But for the large liquid markets, such as the S&P 500, the Toronto Stock Exchange, uh, or the MSCI EFI in the case of international equities, typically those spreads are going to be quite tight anyways, because those are very large and liquid markets. So this is probably not something that the typical index investor needs to worry about if they're buying a very broadly diversified fund with, so for example, um, an international equity fund might hold eight or 900 stocks in a dozen or more countries. Chances are you're never going to get the timing right anyway. That's right. Exactly. Unless you're making an enormous trade, you probably don't need to make to put too much attention into that. That's but. right. And I think that's one of the dangers, uh, especially for retail investors, is to overthink this type of thing. Um, you know, when the underlying markets are open or or bid-ask spreads or even trade or limit orders or limit order, how to price your limit order. Because if you start to overthink those things, it means that you're probably going to be less efficient in terms of just getting your money invested and sticking to your financial plan um, and just, you know, keeping it simple and rebalancing as needed. Exactly. Although there is one uh, aspect of this that I think is important, even for uh, small retail investors. It's one that um, I've got firsthand experience with and we make a real concerted effort is that is there are a number of days every year when the U.S. market is closed, but the Toronto Stock Exchange is open. That's right. And if you're buying U.S. equities on a day when the U.S. markets are closed, what kind of things can happen? So those ETFs actually still trade. And that's that's a really good example because I, I had an advisor reach out to me not too long ago um, on one of those days and saying, hey, how come uh, how come this ETF is trading on the S&P 500? Isn't the market closed? Um yeah, absolutely, but it's it's still trading, and it's still there's still uh, the market makers are still able to price it based on futures contracts. Uh, but what happens is that you'll see the spreads are a lot wider. The bid ask spread on that is not going to be, let's say, a penny or two pennies. It's typically going to be a lot wider because the market makers are assuming more risk to provide a liquid market on that security when the market is closed. Yeah, and this is one I would encourage people that um, even if you are just making a modestly sized trade uh, and it's Martin Luther King Day or one of the U.S. holidays where the Toronto market is open, just do it tomorrow. That's right. That's a great best practice. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about kind of the inner workings of ETFs because I think, again, people don't necessarily understand how they work. We know that ETFs generally have low fees, low management fees, especially compared to, you know, traditional active mutual funds. But there are fees and a lot of people ask me, how does an ETF take its fee? Like I never see it deducted on my brokerage statement or anything like that. So how do they charge fees and, and how how is that – what goes on behind the scenes there? Sure. Yeah. So that's typically handled uh, on the ETF company side internally. Uh, that management fee is actually deducted on a daily basis from – the net assets of the fund. So what you're seeing on your statement as an investor in terms of performance is already net of of that fee. And typically when you go and check um, performance numbers, let's say on investment analysis websites such as Morningstar, those numbers as well are already net of performance. So it's deducted by the ETF company in-house. And when that covers is the fund company's daily expenses. So their their costs to pay salaries, uh, their utilities, uh, their research, their trading platform. So that's what those uh, management fees go to pay for. One of the things that I think most investors like when they buy 
especially income-oriented investors, is a consistent cash flow. So if you are an ETF and you have, again, hundreds of stocks and you're getting these dividends at a random schedule, you know, the investor might want a predictable amount of income every quarter. You know, and it's not going to be consistent over the very long term, but you don't want it to be haphazard. You want some expectation of what you're going to receive. So what mechanisms do ETF providers use to smooth out those distributions so they're roughly similar every month or every quarter? So in general, what we try and do is pay out all of the income we receive, either in dividends or in interest coupon payments from the underlying securities. Uh, but we do use what we call smoothing to make sure that the the dividends are somewhat consistent from one uh, payment period to the next because we don't want them to be too lumpy or all over the place. We want them to be fairly predictable for investors so they have a sense of the kind of cash flow that they can expect in a product. That's not to say that they're fixed distributions, but just to give it a little bit more predictability. So do you do that by holding back a little bit of the dividends that you have on hand or do you do it by adding a little bit of what's called return of capital to give them give you a little bit more but then of course if you pay out more income than you've received the investor has to understand that that amount isn't taxable that's why it's called return of capital it's sort of like giving you your own money back yeah, so sometimes there is return of capital as a result of the uh, the smoothing process, uh, but we do try and and pay out as much as uh, as much as we can. And we should say too that ETFs, mutual funds, are obligated to pay that out. It's not like they can I withhold mean, they can... it and not pay it. If we don't feel like paying you a dividend, you you're not going to get it this month. Well, now I guess in theory they could reinvest all of the dividends and never pay out any of the cash, but they still have to hand you the tax bill at the end. So on your T three right. slip, for example, if the fund received you know, a dollar in dividends per share, you're going to get a tax bill for that, even though you didn't get Absolutely. the actual cash. Yeah. And actually, that brings me to uh, another point, a question that I get so often, there's a certain time of the year around tax time, uh, where I get about a thousand questions every year um, regarding uh, adjusted uh, cost-based adjustments um, for, for capital gains. Right. So let's talk a little bit about this because for ETF and mutual fund investors, there's really two kinds of capital gains that you need to be concerned about, right? The first is at a very personal level. If you sell your ETF shares for a profit, mm -hmm. you realize a capital gain. People, I think, know that. Yeah. They have to report that. But what happens if I'm a buy and holder? I never sold any of my ETF shares during the year. I get my T3 slip at the end of the year and it says there was a $2,000 capital gain. Where does that come from? So where that comes from is within the ETF, uh, there might be some rebalancing that takes place over the course of the year to bring the weights back in line to, let's say, the index that it's tracking. Um, there could also be some adjustments if there's any currency hedging going on. There might be some gains on the uh, forward contracts that are used for creating the currency hedges to uh, to hedge out currency risk. Um, so an investor even who's not buying or selling their individual units might end up with a tax bill because of some of these changes within the portfolio. Um, and capital gains within an ETF structure, it's treated consistently across the industry, by the way. So BMO um, treats it the same way as every other ETF provider in Canada. The capital gains are reinvested. Um, so what happens is that the average cost base of the investor is adjusted upwards to reflect that 
capital gain within the portfolio, and the investor is issued a T3 or a tax slip that reflects capital gains of that amount. So in the industry, these are referred to as phantom distributions. Uh, there's a really good article, if you Google, the Globe and Mail did it a little while ago as well on uh, on phantom distributions and ETFs and how they work. I also wanted to mention um, a PDF that I use very often with, with investment advisors and portfolio managers, because a lot of investment advisors uh, sometimes need to be reminded of this stuff um, as well. There's, there's a piece, it's called What to Expect During Tax Season. It's an FAQ piece. Um, and it walks through the different types of distributions you might see in an ETF structure from a tax perspective. And it talks about the reinvestment of capital gains distributions in an ETF structure. So I find this piece is super handy. I use it all the time, probably about a thousand times every single year. Um, and you'll find a link to that uh, in the podcast notes. Yeah, we'll put a link to that on the site for, for listeners who, uh, who can download a copy as well. And sometimes I even recommend that advisors share that that FAQ piece with their client's accountants so that the accountant can be aware of, uh, of that mechanism and how it works and what adjustments they, they need to make. So this is an interesting point that you raise about that because, um, and this is not to criticize accountants, but I think it's fair to say that a lot of accountants don't necessarily appreciate the subtleties of ETF taxation. And so they may not be aware of these kinds of things as well. Um, one of the things that we have seen improving a little bit is you talked a little bit about when an ETF distributes a capital gain that has already been reinvested. In other words, you didn't receive any cash for it. You need to increase the cost base of your yep. holding. Otherwise, you're going to pay tax on that money twice. That's exactly right? it. Now, it used to be my colleague Justin Bender and I did a white paper a few years ago describing how people had to look this information up and make the adjustment manually. In the last few years, I have seen more and more uh, discount brokerages making those adjustments automatically. Yes. But it's very inconsistent across the industry. So a warning to ETF investors who have taxable accounts. Try to make an effort to do this yourself and make sure that your brokerage is doing it properly. If they are, great. It saves you a lot of bookkeeping. But if they're not, you need to keep track of it yourself. So I would absolutely agree that you should try and confirm uh, before going into tax season and rushing around with all the tax slips, try and get them to your accountant to confirm with your brokerage whether that adjustment is being done automatically or not. Um, a lot of the major firms in Canada do the adjustments automatically at this point, um, you know, seven, eight years ago, that may not have been the case, but uh, things have evolved and uh, technology has gotten better, reporting has gotten better. Um, and yes, to your point, um, you know, there's some great accountants out there that are experts in the tax code and helping their clients save money on taxes, but they're not necessarily experts in the subtleties of the ETF structure and how it works from a tax perspective. All right, so I wanted to wind up today by talking to you a little bit about what I think is kind of an annoying trend in, the, mm -hmm. in not so much in the investment industry, but uh, more in the media, although a little bit of both. And that is what I call like fear-mongering about ETFs. One of the things that you will often hear is as ETF investing, or at least as index investing becomes more popular, markets become less and less efficient. And there 
indexing almost becomes a victim of its own success. What do you think about that argument? So first and foremost, the advice that I would give to investors is to always consider the source of that type of report because oftentimes it will be a portfolio manager um, of an actively managed mutual fund and they may be losing assets. Um, clients that are selling their their units in order to move into ETFs, um, and they there may be a certain degree of frustration there. Uh, so I would always consider the source of the information first and foremost. Um, the second thing is I always I like math, okay? So I always like considering what are the actual numbers and does this claim make sense? Um, so global equity markets are roughly $44 trillion in value, and ETFs represent about 6% ownership of that. Uh, global bond markets are over $100 trillion in value, and bond ETFs represent 2 to 3% ownership of that. So some of these claims, I mean, given the, the actual math behind it, just does not make sense. Um, another piece that I think is probably the best piece written on, on the topic, or one of them, definitely one of my favorite, um, is the report. It's called Our Bond ETFs Dangerous? And it's actually being written by Ray Curzero, who's Director of Research at PWL Capital. Um, so if you're interested in the topic, I would suggest that you read uh, this piece, actually, because he does a great job in that piece of debunking the myths, and it's really based on empirical evidence. Uh, like he's looking at, you know, during the financial crisis, during 2008, um, how how high yield bond ETFs traded uh, in response to the crisis. So a lot of the underlying high yield bonds went no bid. They were not trading at all. But the ETFs continued to trade and provided liquidity to that market, provided price discovery to that market when the underlying market was not even functioning. Um, so I think that there, there's some great uh, points in, in that report, and that's why I wanted to mention it specifically. So let's uh, wind up by just asking you where you see uh, the trends in this industry going now. It wasn't so long ago that you know ETF and index fund was were two synonymous terms. It's been a long time since that was true. The uh, the the industry is exploding and growing. Um, let's talk about where you see it headed in the next five years. So I think the line is becoming more and more blurred between ETFs and mutual funds because ETFs used to be associated with a passive index tracking um, instrument and mutual funds used to be associated with a traditional actively managed portfolio. Now, what we've seen in the last several years, over uh, the last year, there's been more than 11 new providers entering the ETF space. A lot of them are companies uh, that run mutual funds as well. And there's been a lot more products launched uh, that would fall under the actively managed uh, side of things or the sort of smart beta, which is quasi-actively managed. Um, in fact, there were about 200 new ETFs listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange last year alone. Um, the majority of the assets in the ETF business in Canada are still passive index tracking, traditionally passive uh, ETFs. So, you know, more than two-thirds actually are still passive index tracking ETFs in terms of the, the asset base, but we are seeing the active side of things grow. So I think that that line between ETFs and mutual funds is becoming more and more blurred. I do think that the ETF uh, landscape, I mean, the ETF business is going to continue to grow by leaps and bounds. Uh, we saw the ETF industry in Canada double since 2014. 
2013. Um, as of now, we're at about $179 billion in, uh, in assets under management. It's still only about a tenth of the size of the mutual funds uh, landscape in Canada. But we do think that over the next five years that you're going to see the ETF industry uh, grow to possibly even above $400 million. Another thing that um, that I think it's important to clarify is that um, you know ETFs are typically as associated with being low cost, but I think it's really important to investors to be aware of what they're buying. Just because something's in an ETF wrapper doesn't necessarily mean it's low cost either. In fact, one of the most expensive, or some of the most expensive ETFs in Canada have all-in fees above above one percent. Some of them even above two percent, depending on the on the structure. Um, so I think that that's really important to uh, to look at and to consider. You need to know exactly what you're buying. I think it's fair to say in general the ETF industry is kind of going the way of the mutual fund industry and in that it's just, um, you know, it's exploding not only in popularity but just in the variety of products. It's becoming more and more confusing for investors to navigate and it's become more important, I think, you know, for the average investor, especially those who, you know, are, are just looking to do a simple index-based strategy to just try to keep it as simple as possible and try not to get distracted by all the exotic products that are out there. So I think for um, for investors, um, the main thing is uh, you know just to be be aware of what you're buying. Try and stick to the basics. Don't get distracted because there's so much different product out there. Um, I think for most investors, a best practice is try not to get too cute with your portfolio and too specific in your allocations. Um, and for broad market ETFs, I mean they're they're typically going to be quite similar uh, from the the different major ETF providers in the country. All right. Thanks, Erica. I appreciate you coming in today and sharing your insights with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. It is time again for an installment of Bad Investment Advice, where we look at the ways the media and the financial industry do their best to sabotage your long-term plans. This time, I'm going to take a look at an article that was sent to me by a listener. It was published by Invesco, an enormous mutual fund and ETF provider, and it's called Addressing the Risks of a Top-Heavy U.S. Equity ETF. Now, the article doesn't actually focus on a specific ETF. Instead, it takes aims at all index funds that track the S&P 500 index, which is the most popular benchmark for U.S. stocks, and by extension, all traditional index funds that weight their underlying stocks according to the size of the company. Now, before we go further, it's worth reviewing how traditional indexes are constructed and why, and then we can consider whether other methodologies might be better. Traditional indexes like the S&P 500, or in Canada, the S&P TSX Composite Index, are built using a methodology called capitalization weighting, or just cap weighting for short. A company's market capitalization is calculated by multiplying its current share price by the number of shares outstanding in the market. For example, the largest company in Canada by market capitalization is Royal Bank, and they actually make the math quite easy for us because Royal Bank has approximately 1.44 billion outstanding shares, and the stock is currently trading right around $100, so its market cap is about $144 billion. That's large enough to give this company a 6.5% share in a cap-weighted index of the Canadian stock market. Now, the other companies in the top 10, not surprisingly, are the other four big banks, as well as CN Railway, Suncor, TC Energy, Brookfield Asset Management, BCE, and Shopify, all of which make up at least 2% of the overall index. 
Other companies that you might have heard of, such as Sleep Country, Hudson's Bay Company, and Cineplex, are much smaller when measured by market cap, and these make up a fraction of 1% of the index. Now, the S&P 500 includes 500 of the largest companies in the U.S., and it's actually a bit less top-heavy than its Canadian counterpart, but there's still some pretty big names here. Microsoft now makes up about 4%, followed by Apple and Amazon, both of which comprise more than 3% of the S&P 500. Now, all of the companies in this index are huge, but those near the bottom of the list, such as Nordstrom, Harley-Davidson, and H&R Block, as well, ironically, as Invesco, make up only about 0.02% or less. As you've probably figured out, the performance of the large companies in the index are the real drivers of performance. If the banks have a very good year in Canada, for example, investors who hold traditional equity index funds are likely to do very well because these banks dominate the indexes, whereas the smaller companies barely move the needle. Sleep Country could have a phenomenal year and it wouldn't make much difference to index investors. You might as well have just put your money under the mattress. Sorry, couldn't resist. Anyway, this characteristic of cap-weighted indexes is often made out to be a structural flaw because it supposedly means that it gives investors too much exposure to very big and potentially overvalued companies. In the Invesco article, the author writes, quote, As a small number of already large companies have skyrocketed, investors tracking cap-weighted indexes have unwittingly increased their exposure to these winners. At the same time, they've been decreasing their exposure to companies that have lagged the overall index. Put another way, they've been buying high and selling low, close quote. So if cap-weighted indexing is fundamentally flawed, what's the alternative? Well, the Invesco article sings the praises of an equal-weighted strategy, which isn't a new idea. In fact, Invesco has had an equal-weighted S&P 500 ETF for many years now in the U.S., and in May, the company launched a Canadian version that's now traded on the TSX. As the name suggests, rather than combining all 500 companies in the index according to their market cap, an equal-weighted strategy simply holds the same amount of each. So in this case, each of the 500 companies is assigned a weight of 0.2% in the index. So giants like Microsoft and Apple have the same influence as much smaller companies like Nordstrom and Harley-Davidson. But then here comes the kicker. The author states, quote, Historical performance data for the S&P 500 Equal Weight Index shows that it has consistently outperformed the market capitalization weighted S&P 500 over the long term, close quote. Well, that's certainly a compelling claim and it's worth investigating. And there should be plenty of data here too, since the S&P 500 has been around since the 1950s and high quality market data on U.S. stock goes back at least to the 1920s. But when you check the footnote in the Invesco article, you'll learn that the outperformance was measured from April 1st, 2003 to March 31st, 2018. And in fact, data with those same start and end dates is also featured prominently on the promotional material for the new Canadian version of the equal weighted S&P 500 ETF. But does this show that the strategy has consistently outperformed over the long term? It's 15 years of data. That might be long-term for people who watch BNN every day, but this is hardly a robust data set that one can use to claim superiority over traditional indexing. Over every 15-year period, it will always be possible to find a different indexing methodology that would have beaten cap weighting, but that has no value unless investors can reasonably expect that outperformance will continue in the future. So let's put this one to the test. What would happen if you took that April 2003 start date and extended it backwards 15 years instead of forwards? Which methodology outperformed during that period? 
Unfortunately, we don't have data for the equal weighted S&P 500 index for those years, because at the time there were no funds using the strategy. But we can consider a proxy. Think about what happens when you assign an equal weighting to the top 500 companies in the US, rather than using a traditional cap-weighted methodology. In the equal weighted index, the average market cap of the companies is going to be much lower. In other words, if a cap weighted index gives disproportionate influence to the largest companies, then an equal weighted index gives a disproportionate influence to what we would call mid cap companies. So while it's not a perfect comparison, it's reasonable to use the performance of mid cap stocks as a proxy for how well an equal weighted methodology would have done during periods for which we have no index data. Unfortunately, we do have a very large data set for the US market, subdivided by company size. So for large cap stocks, we'll use the top 20% by market cap, and for mid cap stocks, we'll use companies in the next 30%. And indeed, if we look back at the period that Invesco considers from April 2003 to March 2018, the outperformance of the equal weighted S&P 500 index corresponds with the outperformance of the mid cap index. Specifically during that period, large cap US stocks returned just over 10% annually, while the mid cap index returned 12.5%. However, over the previous 15 years, that is from April 1988 through March 2003, large cap stocks outperformed mid caps by about 0.8% annually. And what's more, during the full 20 years preceding the dot-com crash in March 2000, large caps also outperformed mid cap stocks by about the same amount. Now don't get me wrong, the lesson here is not that you should favor an index methodology that gives greater emphasis to large cap stocks. The point is simply to appreciate that different segments of the markets will always outperform over certain periods, and you can always create a back-tested index focusing on that segment of the market, whether it's mid-cap stocks, small caps, value, sectors, or something else. So there's nothing inherently wrong with an equal weighted S&P 500 index fund. And if you want to use one for your US equities in your portfolio, I won't try to stop you. What worries me is that the search for a better mousetrap is a huge distraction to a long-term investing strategy. If you're going to be an index investor, you need to get used to people disparaging cap-weighted indexes. They're routinely presented as fatally flawed investment strategies, and not only by companies like Invesco that sell alternative products. Even academics like to pile on. Several years ago, the Cass Business School in London, UK, published a pair of research papers comparing traditional indexing to 13 alternative strategies for US stocks from 1968 through 2011. The alternative strategies not only included equal weighting, but also methodologies that weighted stocks according to fundamentals, such as dividends and price-to-book ratios. During the period they looked at, a cap-weighted strategy derived an annual return of 9.4%. Meanwhile, every single alternative strategy they looked at did even better. They all came in between 9.8% and 11.5%. The researchers even did a simulation in which they randomly generated portfolios of a thousand stocks each, which were then equally weighted. Quote, effectively, we programmed the computer to simulate the stock picking abilities of 10 million monkeys, the researchers wrote. And the results, quote, nearly every monkey beats the performance of the market cap index. Now, this is all good fun, but what does it mean for the average investor? You know, for me, it's always come down to this. It's great that academics have found that every strategy under the sun crushes the humble index fund. And yet here in the real world, the reality is quite different. Over every meaningful period, traditional index funds outperformed the vast majority of alternatives. 
Part of the reason, of course, is that cap-weighted ETFs, for all of their flaws, have the lowest fees and the lowest turnover in the universe of available funds. But it's not just about cost. Research by firms such as Dalbar have shown that individual investors routinely underperform by even more because they jump from fund to fund chasing past performance. You know, maybe it's true that nearly every monkey beat the performance of the market cap index, but here in the real world, precious few monkeys have actually enjoyed that kind of track record. There are many reasons for this, but the most persistent is a lack of discipline and an inability to stick to a long-term strategy. During the 15-year period when Invesco's equal-weighted S&P 500 ETF outperformed the broad market, it would have been easy to stick to that strategy. But I'm not so sure that would have been the case during the even longer periods when its performance would have lagged significantly. Of course, those who use traditional indexing strategies can lose confidence too, especially during a deep bear market. Couch potato investors are not immune to the temptation to abandon their long-term plan, but they probably are less likely to be seduced by alternatives because they've accepted that, to paraphrase Winston Churchill's comment on democracy, cap-weighted indexing is the worst investing strategy except for all of the others. For all of their faults, traditional index ETFs are the cheapest, simplest, and most tax-efficient way to build a diversified portfolio that will give you the exposure to virtually all of the entire global equity market. And if that's not enough to enable you to achieve your financial goals, then something other than your investment strategy is to blame. There are many reasons why investors fail, but the shortcomings of cap-weighted indexing are not among them. Fund companies suggesting otherwise are just spewing more... Bad investment advice. And we're going to reach into the mailbag for another installment of Ask the Spud, where I answer questions from listeners and blog readers. And with me, as always, with today's question is my colleague, Amanda Diel. So today's question comes from Jim, who writes, I spoke with my financial advisor about transferring out of a mutual fund with a 2% MER to a discount brokerage so I could get started with one of Vanguard's asset allocation ETFs. He told me something that I had not realized. He said on top of the ETF's 0.25% fee, I will also pay the MER of each underlying fund. There are seven of these, each with a fee of roughly 0.2%. That works out to another 1.4% which means my overall cost would be 1.65%. I thought the 0.25% was the only fee I would incur when investing with an asset allocation ETF. Have I been wrong about this? Thanks for this question, Jim. And let me assure you, it's not you who has been thinking about this wrong. It's your advisor. He's actually made two fundamentally incorrect assumptions here. And for someone who makes his living selling investments, these are unforgivable. But if you're a new investor, you might have wondered the same thing. So let's dispel these two misunderstandings now. Now, Jim is considering investing in one of Vanguard's asset allocation ETFs, which allow you to buy a fully diversified portfolio with a single product. The other major ETF providers in Canada, iShares and BMO, also have their own family of asset allocation ETFs, and they're all built the same way. Each fund is a kind of wrapper that holds six or seven underlying ETFs covering the global stock and bond markets. These asset allocation ETFs have management fees, of course. In the case of the Vanguard products, the MER, or management expense ratio, is 0.25%. And each of the underlying ETFs also carries its own management fee. So it's reasonable to ask whether ETF providers are double dipping. 
In other words, if you buy one of these asset allocation ETFs, are you paying the management fee on all of the underlying funds plus an additional 0.25% or so on top of that? Well, let's be very clear about this. The answer is no, you're not paying twice. All of the asset allocation ETFs waive the management fee on the underlying funds, and they only charge you that one overall fee, in this case, 0.25%. This is disclosed in the prospectus of each fund, so I'll quote from Vanguard's. Quote, there shall be no duplication of management fees chargeable in connection with the Vanguard ETF and its investment in underlying funds, close quote. You know, this fund of fund structure is not unique to asset allocation ETFs. Lots of balanced mutual funds have been using this structure for many years. They might have individual funds for Canadian equities, U.S. equities, international equities, and bonds, and then they wrap up all of these asset classes in a convenient balanced fund. Investors who use this product pay only the published management fee, not one layer of fee on the underlying funds, and then a second fee on top of that. So let's move to the second argument that Jim's advisor made, which is actually much more problematic, but it is one that I've heard many times. Vanguard's asset allocation ETFs have seven underlying funds, three for bonds and four for stocks, each with its own management expense ratio. Now, as we've just said, these fees are all waived inside an asset allocation ETF, but let's assume that you held each of the seven ETFs individually. What would the overall cost of your portfolio be? Well, the seven ETFs have MERs that range from 0.06% to 0.38%, averaging right around 0.2%, as Jim's advisor noted. However, the advisor assumed that the investor's fee would be 0.2% times 7, or 1.4%. But of course, this is terrible math. In order to calculate the total cost of the funds in a portfolio, you don't simply add the fees together or multiply the average fee by the number of funds. Think about it this way. If you own 50 mutual funds that each charge 2% annually, does that mean your portfolio's overall fee is 50 times 2% or 100%? When you put it that way, it becomes obvious this is absurd and it can't be the case. The proper way to calculate the overall fee in a portfolio of ETFs or mutual funds is to first multiply each fund's fee by its weight in the portfolio and then to add these numbers together. So here's a very simple example. Imagine you have a portfolio of just two funds, a bond fund that makes up 25% and an equity fund that makes up 75%. Now we'll assume that the bond fund carries a fee of 1% and the equity fund charges 2%. So what's the overall cost of the portfolio? Well, we start by taking the bond fund's fee, 1%, and multiplying it by that fund's weight in the portfolio, which is 25%. 1% times 25% equals 0.25%. Now we do the same with the equity fund. We multiply its fee, 2%, by its weight in the portfolio, which is 75%, and we get 1.5%. Now we add these together. 0.25 for the bonds plus 1.5 for the equities equals an overall cost of 1.75 for the portfolio. Now the math is a little more complicated for a portfolio like the Vanguard Growth ETF portfolio, which has the ticker symbol VGrow. It has seven funds, as we've said, and each of these has a different weighting. So you'll need a spreadsheet, but the process is the same. So the largest holding in this ETF is the Vanguard US Total Market ETF, ticker VUN, which has an allocation of 32.5% and a fee of 0.16%. You multiply these two numbers together, you get 0.052%. 
and you follow the same steps for the remaining six ETFs in the portfolio, and then you add up all seven numbers to learn the overall cost. In this case, the seven underlying funds in Vigro, if you held them individually in the same proportion, would have an annual cost of about 0.16%. Remember, the MER on Vigro is 0.25%, so you are paying a little more, nine basis points, for the convenience of wrapping up your whole portfolio into a single fund. But for the vast majority of investors, this additional cost is well worth it. Not only does it mean you'll never need to rebalance your portfolio, it also means that anytime you add new money to your account, you can make one trade instead of several. Nine basis points is just $9 a year on every $10,000 you invest. And many brokerages charge $10 per trade. Even if you're trading ETFs for free, an asset allocation ETF imposes a discipline on your strategy. Neglecting to rebalance, or worse, tinkering with your portfolio, can easily cost you more than nine basis points a year. So rest assured, the asset allocation ETFs from Vanguard, iShares, and BMO are not part of a vast conspiracy to charge you 1.65% for a portfolio of ETFs, no matter what the guy at the bank might try to tell you. Instead, they remain the most efficient way to build a globally diversified portfolio at rock-bottom cost. And that's all for this episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast. And I have a little announcement to make. After almost three years, I've decided to take an indefinite hiatus from the podcast. So this will be the last episode for the foreseeable future. While I've enjoyed the ride, it's been increasingly difficult to carve out the time to write and produce new episodes, even once a month. So I want to thank everyone who has helped put together the podcast, especially Tara Hunt, who helped us launch back in 2016. Nick Jaworski, our producer extraordinaire who made me sound professional. Amanda Diel, who added her voice and personality to the Ask the Spud segments. And to my other colleagues at PWL Capital. But most of all, my sincere gratitude to you, the thousands of listeners who downloaded every episode and shared your feedback and support. You can find an archive of past episodes and show notes on my blog, CanadianCouchPotato.com, where I'll be rolling out some changes over the next few months. Thanks for listening.